Resilient Disciples podcast, powered by Awana. I'm your host, Ross Cochran. Thank you for listening. We're going to get right to it today, because on this episode, you'll hear a recent conversation I had with Dr. Denise Muir-Keesbo. Dr. Keesbo is the lead faculty for the Masters of Arts in Children's and Family Ministry at Bethel Seminary. She is a prolific voice in this broader world of kidmen and is committed to equipping leaders to serve in ministries with children and youth in the States and around the world. Whether or not you are aware of Dr. Keesbo's work, I hope you pay attention to what she shares about her journey because I bet you'll hear part of your own story in what she shares. We start the conversation with Dr. Keesbo sharing what it looked like for her to get started in ministry. And I thank you for listening to the Resilient Disciples podcast. I had a, a difficult time hearing God's call to ministry in my life. I grew up as a child in the church and started going to church you know, probably within a week of my birth. Oh. Um, and I was raised in a church that loved Jesus and, and loved people um, and had very strong parameters for how women uh, could function within the, the ministry. And so it was, it was a conservative church. It was Jesus loving scripture following church. Um, and it was limiting in terms of women and girls specifically. So it was, it was difficult for me to hear God's call to ministry because I grew up as a little girl in that context. So in my home church, which I have warm and loving feelings towards, and it's not like this anymore, but when I was little, no woman could teach above fifth grade boys. No woman could stand behind the pulpit and speak. No women could hold elected offices within the church except for the role of deaconess. And that role was to prepare and clean up after communion, never serve it, and assist women in the baptismal process, you know, and oh, sometimes wow. visit women in the hospital. Okay. Um, so that was kind of my context growing up and lots of people who loved me and taught me about Jesus and um, invited me into a lifelong discipleship journey for which I'm deeply, deeply thankful. But as a high schooler, when I began to sense God calling me into ministry, I shared with my pastor that I, I kind of thought God might be calling me to ministry. And, and he told me that meant that I was either going to marry a pastor or be a missionary um, far, far away. And I was a little perplexed as to how my calling be, could, could be contingent on who I married or where I served. But I respected him and wanted to um, learn from him. And But I described the experience as if I had sound de- deadening headphones on. I had on these sound deadening headphones. And God was calling, but it was unclear. I couldn't That's hear. That's a brilliant metaphor. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, you can hear something out there, but yeah. you can't quite understand what it's saying. And you keep kind of turning your ear to understand it and maybe lift the headphone up for mm-hmm. a minute to see if you can understand and yet the headphones remained in place until I graduated from college. I, I had planned to be a Christian counselor because I thought, well, that would be allow me to serve in ministry in a way that was gender appropriate, um, mm-hmm. according to my background. And so I took a course at a seminary called Women and Men in Ministry. And that experience for me was like God took the headphones off and all of a sudden I could hear clearly. Um, I was taught by a woman professor. I was taught by a woman who was an ordained Southern Baptist uh, pastor, Um, a variety of amazing biblical scholars were brought in and theologians to talk to us about these scriptures that I love so much and how, how I could follow the scriptures and yet follow what I sense to be God's call in ministry. 
so all that to say, um, I responded to God's call to ministry eventually. And then an interesting piece was because I was a woman, the place that everybody wanted to put me was in children's ministry. Cause that's where there, there were openings at that point in the eighties for women in ministry. Sure. And I didn't want to go where they wanted to put me. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw myself going into pastoral care, small group leadership, adult discipleship. And when we graduated, the only position that was available for me was in children's ministry. And I need to say, I went into it kicking and screaming, kind of like, seriously, God, is this where you have me? It wasn't like I felt called to children Yeah. Until I started serving in that area, and then I fell in love with it, and everything came together. And I was like, oh, God, please forgive me for kicking and screaming, because this is where you would have me. And I believe it's, it's where we need to have our best and our brightest theologians, our best and our brightest biblical scholars, our best educators, our best family champions need to be serving in children's and family ministry, because I truly believe with all my heart that it is the most important ministry of the church, not only for now, but for the next generation and generations to come. What we do in children's ministry shapes children currently and shapes the future of their lives, the future of the church, the future of the kingdom, really. So yeah. it's, a, it's a calling that I joyfully welcome now, uh, once I could get past my stubbornness <laughs> and really hear what God was calling me to. And I have delighted in serving in children's and family ministry for decades now. And it is our privilege to be able to enjoy the fruits of your service because I wanted to start there because I think mm. it's important for people whenever we have the opportunity to hear from those who have gone before us to understand there's people who are listening to this who feel like they got dragged kicking and screaming into their current position. Sure. Right? And I hope that people are able to see, not in a uh, putting you on a pedestal kind of way, but if uh, God can use Dr. Kiesbo, make that kind of difference, then mm-hmm. wherever you are, God's still going to want to use that to make a difference in the lives of the kids in families in your communities. So I want to kind of shift to this present moment because um, we are experiencing something. The church, families, yeah. entire world are experiencing something that none of us have ever lived through. None of us have ever experienced. Um mm-hmm. I heard recently someone to say that this generation of kids are going to be particularly weird, which I appreciated as a very tongue in cheek way to describe everything that these kids are going through. Yeah. But essentially, how are we doing? You know, Awana loves to talk about child discipleship, resilient child discipleship. Yeah. What does that look like in this current cultural moment? Yeah, um, I am by nature a very positive person. In the Strengths Finder, I have positivity in my top 10. Oh, good. Um, so I am always. I don't half- just for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a good balance then, okay. right? So I'm always a glass half full person, and so it's hard for me to say that I think the state of child discipleship at this moment in time is at worst fragile, and at best under significant change. Um, that's just the reality of where we are. I think pre-pandemic, the approach that churches took that approach has to be completely overhauled with the changes that the pandemic has visited upon us right now. Mm -hmm. And there will be no going back to the way things were. I think people longingly talk about, we just can't wait till we can get back to life as normal or the life the way it used to be. I don't think life is going to return to the way it used to be in any area of our lives. And that includes child discipleship, Mm -hmm. children's ministry, family ministry within churches. It's going to change. 
it is changing. It has changed dramatically right now, but that's not a temporary thing. I think it is going to change and will continue um, to change. So I think if leaders hadn't already built relationships with the children and families in their churches, the pandemic brought that into stark relief. If they focused on programs and facilities and um, razzmatazz <laughs> that they can't do in the same way. I mean, some people have amazing digital programming that they have available for families. The question is whether or not families access that and use that in the home. So they take that energy they put into stellar programming. And, and I'm an advocate of doing things excellently, doing things well. But if that was done at the cost of relational ministry, the pandemic shined a very bright light on that. Mm. So all that energy that had been thrown into weekly programming and keeping the machine running, so to speak, um, came to a screeching halt. And we had to think about, okay, now what is at the core here? What is it that we want to see happen in the lives of children that will set them up for a lifetime of knowing, loving, serving, and following Jesus? And how do we truly partner well with parents? And so I think one of the reasons that Awana has such great stats in terms of uh, children staying active in their faith if they grew up in an Awana program mm -hmm. is more than just the Awana program, of course, right? Yeah. It's the family that they're a part of. It's the church that they're a part of. It's the relationship between the child and the parent or guardian or grandparent or faith friend, whoever it was that took them to church. Um, it's that relationship that Awana facilitated that was so mm -hmm. beautiful and so the question now is, how do we take that concept of equipping and empowering parents in whatever it might look like to pour faith into their children? And I, I need to say, I think one of the big problems in the typical parent equipping model is that we assume it all has to be done programmatically and formally. And the family by its very nature is an informal educational institution. Yeah, children yeah. do not learn manners at dinner time because their parents get out a workbook and work through it with them and they have to pass quizzes and tests and they have to recite certain things in order to yeah. get their manner badge right mm -hmm. children learn manners because they eat meals together with their family hopefully a couple times a day maybe three times a day when they're little and they're taught over and over again like deuteronomy 6 4 through 9 says repeated over and over the basics of manners and how they should behave when they are at a table and how they handle eating a meal and what the expectations are for individual families of what they eat or don't eat and how they clean up afterwards and all those things. That's an informal educational process. And so in the same way, our faith needs to have an informal, ongoing educational process in the home. And it's, it's what Deuteronomy 6 is talking about, that when you're up or down, in or out, all day long, you share faith with children. And you do it by how you role model. You do it by the conversations that come up casually. You do it throughout the day. And then you have specific times where you focus in on teaching your children about God and the things of God or whatever it might be for the individual family. And, but it has to be both and. They have to have both the informal and the formal. And if we think just the formal is going to take care of it, that's going to be a problem yeah. um, if it's and not I, integrated. 
Yeah. And I think we've seen how it's become a problem because we've approached it with that sort of false expectation of it has to be this formal thing because now families are dealing with having to be the teacher in all of the other roles on top of trying to be a parent. So then to try to add this other formal thing, um, it becomes burdensome and often non-existent. And I think, you know, my, my daughter's five. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm, my wife and I are just sort of jumping into the discipleship game. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I look, I would say you've been doing it since she, she was born. You just haven't been formally intentionally necessarily doing it. So that's, that's been happening since the minute you started interacting with her and singing, Jesus loves me to her while you changed a diaper or, you know, said loving words to her about God as you were reflecting on a sunset or, you know, whatever it might be that that was happening in conversation all along. That was just setting, setting the stage for a more intentional, more formalized, intentional discipleship process. Thank you. I certainly hope so. I think that um, the, the way that this pandemic has leveled things for us, you know, Mm -hmm. I think for an organization like Awana, we had always hoped that the curriculum we provided, the tools we provided, the resources were just, were just that, were just tools mm-hmm. that could be used and make your job easier. Because the thing I often say in this podcast is, you know how to love kids. Mm-hmm. No one would be listening to you and I talk right now if they didn't care about kids, if they didn't care about the future of the faith, right. and then right. they didn't love kids. So you know how to love the kids in your community. The goal right. for us is to provide you with resources and tools so that it's easier for you to go do the hard part. And yeah. I'm grateful because I think there's never been a, a time in our history where Awana has been able to be less prescriptive. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you, the person who's listening to this how to minister to their community. I can't tell them what that looks like because the world has changed. And right. I hope that folks who pay attention to this podcast feel equipped, empowered, and inspired to mm-hmm. lean into loving those kids and loving the families of the communities. Now, you are someone who has spent a lot of time ministering to the whole family. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people who are part of this community feel like, oh, I I love kids. I don't really know what to do with parents. Right. Or, you know, a lot of new people are like, oh, I just want to talk to the parents. I don't, I don't want to, you know, get messy with the kids. Right. And you were someone who has done both well during this. And we've been having this conversation about re-engaging with the family now, but Mm -hmm. what do you feel like families are going through? I want, I'm curious how you would articulate this because I want to make sure that the church doesn't forget that the person that they're like, man, why haven't they texted me back is Mm -hmm. also dealing with a global pandemic. But how would you articulate what families are going through right now? Well, I think they're going into uncharted waters. No one has ever done it before. And so it means that their footing has been um, pulled out from under them. They, They don't have a firm place to stand. They can't look to their aunties and uncles and parents and generations gone by to say, how do we deal with this? Uh, It's all new. It's all different. And yes, we've had crucial moments in our history as a country, as a nation before, and certainly our global brothers and sisters would have a lot to teach us in this arena because they have dealt with crises and struggles in ways that people in North America have not had to do for, for their entire lives. It's, it's more common to them. So if ever there's a time for us to lean in and listen to our global brothers and sisters, this would be a good time. Anytime I get discouraged, uh, I, am, I find that if I, if I am invited into a global conversation or I go somewhere and teach globally, I come back and I'm like, oh God, you are so much bigger. You are so much more um, brilliant, so much more yeah. vibrant, so much more alive than 
than my little narrow world sees. And so I think because like lockdown, what does that mean? That means you stay in your home and your world and your focus, everything gets small Mm -hmm. unless you intentionally keep exposing yourself to something bigger than that's healthy and good for you and for your family Um, as compared to the endless Netflix movie marathons, you know, and that's understandable too. But I think people are, are, they're unsteady. I think they're uncertain. I think they're overwhelmed. Mm. I think they're isolated. Um, I think they're trying to figure out how to meet all the demands that are being laid at their doorstep between working from home themselves, uh, monitoring or speaking into their children's educational process that's being brought to them from the schools they're a part of, um, trying to figure out how to do church online, how to do children's ministry online. I mean, it's just, it's really, really hard. And so I think we just have to acknowledge this is a really hard time for children and families. And so if we send something out and it doesn't get the response we would like, I think we need to make sure we don't start uh, filling that gap, you know, the, the mind, the gap, Mm -hmm. we don't, we don't want to fill that gap with, well, they don't care about Jesus and they don't love their children because <laughs> that's not true at all. Yeah, They, they just are, are overwhelmed and isolated and don't know how to, to move through this pandemic in a yeah. way that's helpful. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's easy to do so because the, the ministry, the ministry professional is overwhelmed as well. But sure, sure. I think when I think about that outreach, you, yeah. you engage in outreach differently with someone who is over, who, you know, is overwhelmed. You engage in right. outreach differently with someone who, you know, might just need extra grace. And I yeah. hope that again, for the folks who are hearing this conversation, that they are doing the things in their own life, not only to model for their own kids or model for their yeah. communities to be supported, to continue to offer that grace. Because yeah. I think this community, especially is so self-sacrificial is so yeah. willing to go above and beyond for the kids and families in their communities that it can often feel like they're pouring out on empty. And I hope that the pandemic has also offered them a time to make sure that they themselves are okay because my kids need you. The kids around the world need the person who's listening to this to continue to show them the love of Jesus. I think you touch on something that's really important, which is it becomes so easy for the ministry professional to say, well, they don't care, right? To sort of jump in and, you know, Mm -hmm. fill that narrative. And I'm curious for the person who's listening to this, who has begun to do that, do you have any um, advice or things that, that can help them sort of change back their heart, right? Or, or turn around the other way to continue to engage in this work? Because I would imagine it can sometimes feel incredibly discouraging to send out mass emails or texts or to put on a Facebook event and see that number not be that high on responses. You know, how do, how do we inspire this community to stay engaged when it feels like people aren't paying attention? Yeah. I think what I would encourage people to do is, I mean, we need to do those various things. We need to do the Facebook events. We need to send out curriculum and digital media. We need to stay in contact. But if you start to get discouraged, I think reach out to relationships Mm. because the relationships are what build resiliency, right? It builds resiliency of ministry. It builds resiliency of faith formation. Relationships are key. Our relationship with Jesus obviously is foundational, but then our relationships with those who we are partnering with in ministry those we are serving in ministry, um, just pick up the phone and make a phone call and, and try and find out how you can serve the, the people that you're attempting to serve. You know, obviously sending a survey is great. There's sure. nothing wrong with sending a survey to create information and, and to, to create a foundation of what's going on. 
to kind of, but having actual conversations with people is a great addition to sending out surveys mm. so that, um, so that we can make sure that we are hearing what's happening in the lives of people and how we can best serve them at this time. Yeah. There's, there's something called the, the fundamental attribution theory. And what that fundamental attribution theory says is when there's a gap between you and I, if I created the gap, I have all kinds of reasons for why that happened. And so for families, like if there's a gap between us and the children's ministry professional, um, the families know why there's that gap because they can see it and it has nothing to do with whether they love Jesus or love their children. So they, they attribute it to situational uh, realities, but the person on the other side of that can very easily move to attributing it to character issues. Like mm. they're lazy. They don't care. They aren't sure that they love Jesus anymore. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of things yeah. that it gets attributed to and so depending on which side we are in that gap depends on what we um, place as the reason for this gap. And so what we need to do is make sure that we mind the gap. You know, in, in London, when you ride the tube, yeah. it says mind the gap. So we need to mind that gap and make sure that we don't go immediately to character assassination <laughs> when, when, when our programs and our finely crafted videos and technology and Facebook events kind of land flat, mm. we need to make sure we mind that gap and make sure we understand that there are situational um, rationale for why this is happening. And it is not necessarily, and probably not at all, the character of the, of the people that we are trying to reach, the parents, the grandparents, the guardians, the faith friends. It's not their character. It's not their love for Jesus. It's all the other stuff that's going on. So minding the gap in this time, I think is really, really important. Absolutely. And then I think, I think um, ministry professionals need to have others to talk with. They need to know they're not alone. They need to connect. Um, they need to hear things like this that can give them hope. They need to tend their own spiritual garden to make sure that they're um, pouring into their own lives because they can't give what they don't have. Um, yeah. All those things can make a difference. And then, and then to have the long view in mind, like we're in this for the long haul and this will come to an end. We'll be able to move into a new normal mm -hmm. and it's, it's within sight now. You know, it's not so far away anymore. So we're moving in a really good direction. We've got a ways to go, but we're moving in a really good direction, like nationally, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Individual pockets are, are facing a lot of really tough things. And I, like I talk with my graduates and students and some of them have been up and running in children's ministry face-to-face -face since June and others of them have not even opened up yet. You know, mm -hmm. so depending on where you live and what the situation is and what your church leadership, um, their, their sense of this all is, you may still, I mean, it may have been, this may be month 11 for you that you've been shut down in terms of face-to-face -face, and that's long, but, a year from now, 11 months from now, it's not going to be like this anymore. Right. I don't know what it's going to be like exactly, <laughs> but it's not going to be like this. And we're yep, going to, yep. it's hopeful. It's hopeful if we can keep the long view in mind. Yeah. I really, I really believe that it's one of my favorite things about being in this world is you get to, we get to invest in the future of the faith and the church of yeah. 2050. And yeah. that can always fill you with hope. Yeah. You know, you were talking about that you're different grad students mm. and I think part of this conversation is, is kind of shifting the metric of success, right? For mm -hmm. children's ministry, the, the metrics have been in families or the flashiest program, like you were saying. But now if the metric of success is a discipleship, 
then mm-hmm. a chief way to get there is like you're saying through relationships, right? We talk about yeah. it as, you know, helping a child belong, um, mm-hmm. believe and become. What does a church that is effective in child discipleship right now, what does that church look like? Because I know that there's folks who hear this who desperately want their church to look that uh, to be effective and maybe they feel like they aren't. So what does that look like when you, for a church to do well right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it looks different in different settings. And so it's really hard to give one um, overall measure of success. Um, but I think churches are doing a variety of things to try and connect with children and families, to try and empower parents to be the primary faith nurturers. Um, I think I think churches that are emphasizing a bigger picture rather than just like, you got to do the Sunday school lesson at home. You got to do the Awana lesson at home. Mm. There's a place for that. But churches that understand faith formation is bigger than that. That's a piece of it. And it's important. I'm not in any way denigrating the importance of an intentional discipleship time. So churches that are doing well right now are resourcing parents in how to have fun together with their family because sometimes you just run out of ideas, how to have quality conversations with each other. So conversation starters that they can have at mealtimes or in the car as they're driving or um, when they're waiting for um, something in their life, whether it be waiting for an event to start or waiting for practice to start or whatever. Yep. So encouraging those faith conversations and giving some prompts to help them do that, giving them resources for how to do family discipleship, simple, simple things that can go into the rhythm of their day, the rhythm of their week, um, encouraging them to have to, to institute some traditions in their family, even in the pandemic, like we always do this before bedtime, uh, or like we light a candle and say a prayer together, or we check in with each other and say, what were the blessings and bummers for the day? Um, Whatever it might be, family traditions and rituals, and just prompting parents with ideas for what they can do. And then giving ways for families to serve together. I think if we can do those things, life comes when we look outside ourselves, when we can be externally focused. And so helping families look outside themselves the pandemic has not been helpful in that regard. And so many of the things that we used to be able to do, we can't do anymore. But there are lots of ways that families can serve together. And we just need to prompt some of those as children's ministry leaders, child discipleship leaders. Prompting those kinds of things will make a huge difference. Have fun together, share conversations together, establish some traditions and rituals together and serve together. If the church can do that, it will be a long ways down towards the goal of equipping families. And I think that also takes some of the burden off families. It's like, well, you know, I don't have to have all the resources in place that they use on a Sunday morning in order to talk about faith with my kids. You know, I don't have to have an education degree or a seminary degree in order to talk about faith with my kids. I can, I can play with them and have fun and laugh together you know, I can pray with them. I can read a Bible story with them. I can reflect together on what's going on in our world through the lens of faith with them. Um, and so it just takes it out of that a to-do list yeah. to, and makes it instead a way to live list. Like, how are we going to live rather than what are we going to do? And I think that makes a huge difference because truly what will make a difference in the long haul for child discipleship is if faith is integrated into the everyday life of the family. Um, if it's something that they hang it up 
on a shingle as they walk out the church door, we're not going to have lifelong child discipleship. We're not going to have lifelong resilient discipleship. But if it can truly be integrated into all that they are and all that they do and the ways in which they live, that will make a huge difference. And of course, then parents have to be tending their own spiritual journey in order to be sensitive to and responsive to, again, you can't give what you don't have. And so they need to fill up their cup to make sure that when they get bumped, what spills out is love for Jesus um, or the fruits of the spirit rather than anger and frustration and impatience. Um, If their cup is filled with their own journey of faith, then they're much more ready to share that with their children in the comings and goings of life. The Resilient Disciples Podcast is powered by Awana. Awana is a global nonprofit organization dedicated to equipping leaders to reach kids with the gospel and engage them in lifelong discipleship. Awana is fueled by the generous support of individuals, churches, and organizations, as well as resource sales. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and go to resilientdisciples.com for more resources and many more of these conversations. The podcast is mixed, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Ross Cochran. Our theme song is Fresh Air by Christian hip-hop artist Josiah Williams and Hits by Jude. You also heard I'll Let Go, provided by Josiah Williams from his album, Rerouting 2. Thank you for listening. We'll talk next week.